Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and today I'm so pleased to have in the studio Tway C.J. Jackson Kaguri. Thanks for being here. Thank you, T. May I call you Jackson? Yes, you may. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you're in the middle. You're, you're on tour for your book, The Price of Stones, Building a School for My Village. Um, and you're at the very beginning of it. And then you're heading to Chicago, um, Montreal, some other... Boston, New York, New Hampshire. Yes. We are going to do the whole nation. That's that's great, and then and of course um, you're, you're here, you know, kicking it off in Ann Arbor. That's right. <laughs> so, how does Michigan State feel about that? Uh, Michigan State will be proud to know that I have a green mic in front of me. Uh, but uh, maize and yellow and brew, go brew, go blue, go brew, go yellow. <laughs> here we go. And yeah. and to kick off, I'll actually I'll read your your short bio in the back of the Price of Stones. Uh, Twai C J Jackson Kagori was raised in Uganda. Graduated from Makira e Makere. Makere University and was a visiting scholar at Columbia University. He is a director of development at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, and the founder and director of the Nayaka and Kutamba AIDS Orphan Schools in Uganda. Um, did I get the pronunciation pretty close there, oh, Jackson? Yes. Oh, or? yeah, you did a wonderful job. Uh, you know, oh, go on. <laughs> um, and then you can get more information, nayakaschool.org. And so that's N-Y-A-K-A school.org. Um, and there's also the priceofstones.com that people right. could visit mm -hmm. and find out more about this book. And Facebook and Twitter oh. and blog. Type in the price of stones, and we'll take you to so many places. Oh, that's well. That's great. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's with it. Well, so you're completely linked, connected, in to the whole thing. That's. I mean, that's your. That's that's your main gig, isn't it? You're able to. You're fundraising, and that's how you were able to begin um, the school in your your former village well it's your village still yes it's still, <laughs> it's still your it's, hometown it's still my home village it is the village that made me the man i am and so i go back and i appreciate it and we try to get this message to as many people as possible whether they're on twitter whether they're on facebook we follow you linkedin yeah, I we, think that's the first thing that actually pops up for you when you're doing a Google search, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you must be super connected if that's the first thing that pops up now <laughs> before we are, the book even. <laughs> now we are hoping every listener will go and tweet it and re Facebook it and get as many people involved as possible. And so, Jackson, let yes. me ask you, because the, the school was opened in 2003, is yep. that? You began building it in 2001. That's right. When you and your wife, Baranda, she, you guys had a down payment for a house that you were going to, like you were going to build a house in the States, um, and you visited your village, and then you decided, well, basically the grannies got to you, right? Could you tell us a little bit of the, the story? Because I think everyone would rather hear it from you than me re recapping it here. You are doing a good job. You can uh, just go ahead and tell the story. I'll go on tour with you. <laughs> yeah. I need somebody else to tell this story. No, I don't uh, think you do. The, uh, 
going there in 2001 with actually was actually in addition to what had been going on for such a long time i was born and raised in the village uh, called nyakajezi so nyaka is a short word for nyakajezi we try to be nice and accommodative so people can uh, pronounce some of these words and nyakajezi means a, ha- a land of the hills Oh that's beautiful. Beautiful and it will get your muscles working because you have to go up and down the hills. <laughs> walking up and down and when you do this then you understand what women and children and people in our village go through every day. And to get to school. Exactly. And still how children have to walk these hills coming to school. So I was born there, um raised there, went to school there, young boy, happy, big cheeks. Like any other young boy, adventurous, stubborn. My parents uh, were wonderful Christian parents, raised me very well with my sisters and my brother. Uh, just at an early age, and I will be jumping into the book in some instances because some of these stories, you'll find them in the book. At an early age, my sisters would wake up and they are ready to go to school. We were raised in a two-roomed house. all five of us with our parents so i shared a room with my sisters and they didn't like it <laughs> i but, wonder why <laughs> but early in the morning we they would wake up i was still three, four, four, four and a half. i was not yet school age uh, but whenever my sisters woke up and started getting ready to go to school i would snake behind them Oh so you were were you the youngest Ben Jackson? The, yes, okay. I am the youngest of five. Oh. Uh I was nick behind my sisters and got school. If you don't read any other story in this book you want to read that adventure. A four and a half year old boy sneaking seven miles behind two sisters who have no crew and behind them. How did you do it then? How did, how did you I was determined to do it. And I did it, and I got to school, and my dad later found out and came and got me. But they tried to stop me from going to school, and they failed, and they let me start school at a young age, and I have never stopped. And because then you also, you received a scholarship to go to the Kampala University um, in, in the, the city mm-hmm. then. Um, And, and then you were working with human rights as a human rights advocate That's still right. in the city. That's right. How did, and, and then you came to the States as a visiting scholar to Columbia University. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did that actually happen? So in Uganda, one thing your listeners will have to know, three things about Uganda education system. Number one, you have to pay to go to school. So no public education. No public education, free public education. Yeah. Right now, as we talk, this is what they call universal primary education, no tuition. But tuition is always the smallest portion of money you pay. You have to pay PTA, Parents Teacher Association fees. You must, number two, buy your uniform. To go to school, you must wear a uniform. Whether it is pink, boys and girls will wear pink. If it is purple, boys and girls will wear purple. Of course, the boys will wear a shirt and the girls will wear a dress. So I don't want listeners to think, oh, I'm going to wear a dress and, and a uniform. <laughs> and your school is purple. You have Ours a purple uniform. Ours is purple and white. And white, yes. And it has nothing to do with Northwestern University. 
Until you're visiting Chicago, and then <laughs> yeah, maybe I will push that in Chicago. Exactly, but it has nothing to do with Big Ten. Neither is green and white for Kutamba. Has to do with Michigan State. Neither is the school we are going to start. Maize and Brew has anything to do with uh, University of Michigan. Although there could be some potential. compatriots there. Yeah, if like we a, get a listener who throws a million dollars, maybe that might shift us to do the uniform. They could, it could happen. But, um, so, going to school there, you have to pay for your tuition, you have to wear a uniform, you must pass an exam every year to go to the next level. So our children, afterwards I will talk about how they've passed their exams to go to the next level. Each year they pass an exam. If you fail your exam, you repeat a class. So remember your parents are paying and they are poor. And now exam comes and you didn't score enough to go to the next level. How are you going to go back and tell your mom and dad, Oh my bad daddy, I didn't pass. So the answer is always, You don't need to go to school if you can't pass your exams. So I passed my exams and kept up and kept up. And the year I went to the university, I was the only student in the whole district who passed to go to McElroy. So everyone was impressed. The radio station had me. That's why I am a natural on the radio. You're so comfortable here, yeah, Jackson. I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, went on to university. But while I was at the university, in my second year, studying uh, social works and social administration, uh, an organization came to give a presentation how you bring in speakers. And this was a human rights organization. Now, you have to understand, I was born in a village where there were all sorts of violations against women and children. Girls stayed at home because dads didn't want to pay for them to go to school. Women were beaten every night and you would hear them crying in the middle of the night. I wanted to do something back in my village. So I, they, as soon as they read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I said, that's something I must get involved in. That's how I got involved in human rights. Then Columbia University had a competition for East Africa to write an essay about human rights. I wrote an essay and beat all the lawyers and practitioners and got a scholarship to Columbia University. And what year was that, Jackson? 1996. Wow. Ivy League. Ivy League indeed. Mm -hmm. And so, so then you were there. And how long were you? What was, the what was the fellowship for? How many years? It was uh, an 18-year gig for... what they called visiting scholars. It was not a, a degree-granting program. Mm -hmm. They say they are bringing these experts from all over the world, gather in New York, network, get to know, learn skills and knowledge, and take it back to your country. But, it was, but what you wrote about was human rights. Yes. So suddenly you're this expert in human rights, and you're coming to New York all City. All of a sudden, I am this <laughs> man who grew up in a, in a village, and now I'm with United Nations experts, and I'm giving presentations, and I'm interning at Human Rights Watch in New oh. York. I'm reading all these reports, and Amnesty International, who still sponsors programs for this book tour in New York. Oh, yeah. Amnesty is amazing. 26-year-old expat. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> that must have been, were you slightly shell-shocked or oh, yes, how I did was. you? 
I was shocked by the weather, actually, more than anything else. Oh, the winter! No, I saw snow the first time. Tea I had on a short-sleeved shirt with uh, my suitcase and walking all over Joy of Canada and getting out of the airport. And the taxi man goes, where's your coat? <laughs> and, and you said, uh, where's the store? <laughs> right. The expertise didn't shock me at all. I, I, I knew why, how I grew up. I knew what was going on in my village. I wanted to change it. And so I was determined to change it no matter what. And were there some changes that had started to happen back in your village for the, the women and children before you left for Colombia? Was it something that you'd already... Uh, or was the school the idea that you felt could be the focal point of all your energies, which would change the lives of the children, the women, the educate, bringing more education for everyone? There was already some changes, and uh, for me, the way I looked at it, I was not going to preach to everybody, tell them what to do. I was determined to do things my way, Jackson way. That is my village, you can't find a man cooking. Men don't cook. So whenever I was in the village, I you went in, in, the, in the kitchen and cooked, and my dad would yell at me, you are not going to be a man, you look at you, you are cooking. I would go and peel banana, and people would come to see me because I was coming from the university. They knew what I was doing. They knew I was destined to do well, and they were wondering, why is Jackson peeling bananas? Why is he cooking? Why is he collecting firewood? And that would give me an opportunity to talk about equality, talk about issues that you don't have to prove you're a man by not cooking. You can still be a man and still cook. Then the next day I would get in a car and drive. Then, oh, he can drive, but he can also cook. We wonder whether he's a man or not, but I, I had to prove my point through actions. That's yes. how I did it. Start with the actions. Yeah. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Jackson Kaguri, The Price of Stones. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Jackson Kaguri is here. His book, The Price of Stones, Building a School for My Village. Jackson, will you tell us a little bit about the music that we just heard? Brian Delaney, engineer extraordinaire, just picked it out. Brian is a wonderful man. He knows how to choose music. Thanks, Brian. Uh, that's a song sung by Summit. I think he's... Um, 
in Ithaca, based in Ithaca, New York. He's a Ugandan man, and he is playing a song about gathering people to learn, learn and study together as a group. So how how completely appropriate that Brian picked that song to play. We're talking about learning, and that's your your passion. We're, Brian must be Ugandan. He must. Be. I know. He's really, he's, he knows a lot, this guy. He's the music man, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, wait, Jackson, to, to talk the price of stones, you're going around the country now um, with the book. And w- why did you choose to write? Because you're doing so much work and you're, you're also fundraising and you're trying to bring attention uh, to this. And, and now you have... Uh, like uh, you have the physical presence of the schools and you have mm-hmm. multiple schools in different yes. villages now. Um, so why the book? Can you tell us about your reasons for the price of stones? Why the book? I was born and raised in a village that has no books. Reading is not something many people do. In fact, in my household, the only book that was there was my mom's Bible. And you better not touch mom's Bible unless she asks you to read something. So there was no Could anything. your mom read it, Jackson? Was My she... mom, yes, it was a Ruchiga Bible. It is written in a language she can read. My mom reads and writes in a local language. So that was the only book that you can find. There was no, you are Clifford, Red Dog, and uh, all these big bad and... and and every cartoon my my eight-year-old son watches, Nicholas, all that was not there. In fact, I didn't own a book until I was at university. I never had a book, my own book, whether it was at school or at home, until I was at the university. And so, with that lack of reading culture, one thing that I wanted to do was to write a book that our children can read. I started with writing stories, and this will bring in why we even have a co-author in Susan. Uh, I started writing stories for our children back home in our school. And what I want to tell them, number one is, this guy who is the director of your school is not a saint. He has made mistakes like all of you. He's fallen out of a tree, which is the story in the book. He's followed his sister. And that was very serious. That was not, like, I mean, it sounds almost funny when you say it now, but it wasn't because oh, no, it was it a was huge not. accident and your grandmother came every day to oh, pray with you. Oh, my grandmother, God bless her grandmothers all over the world, yes. My grandmother read me Psalms every night during that accident. And in fact, I can afterwards even read something about that accident. And it came with a combination of stubbornness, adventure, and that spirit to find something you don't know what you're going to find. Uh, so I wanted the children to kind of look at, look at this man. He was one day like us. And look at him now. He's accomplished so much, and we want to be like him. I wanted them to get a book and know who wrote about it, who wrote the book and what it's about. They can go to the river and see a river where I sneaked one day from the the church and went swimming and nearly drowned. In fact, that day, my my friend's underwear was swept away by water. 
because it was such a rushing river. Yes, it was such a rushing <laughs> river. But that adrenaline of boys wanting to sneak away and go do something your parents don't know about, we nearly ended up with a dead person. Yes. I wanted these children to understand that. And... Once they understand and read these stories which they are interested in, then they can pick up another book afterwards. But the interest to get them going is to read something they will know about and identify with. Yes. That's why the book was written. And then you can connect to it. That's why The Price of Stones was written. That's why it was written originally. Then I met Susan. And, and the, Susan Urbanic-Linville. Susan was... Um, a, uh, a professor at Indiana University teaching biology and uh, a story ran in the papers in Bloomington, Indiana near Indiana University all this big ten keeps going around me <laughs> <laughs> Hoosiers and so Susan uh, became a donor after reading a story in the papers and as my fundraising custom is always, I meet with donors who give money to our cause. Number one, to find out why you are interested in our cause. Number two, how can we give you the information you are looking for? Number three, how can you get more involved? I don't want you to just throw a $10 check or $100 check and go think, okay, it's gone, I've fulfilled my duty. We want you to think just like you think about your own children. I don't throw $100 at Nicholas, my son, and then throw him outside of the yard. Okay, you're on your own. No. I make his bed. I make his food. I make sure when he hurts, I look at his food. He breaks the bone. I take him to the hospital. Tomorrow I'm there. Next day I'm there. And I let him know that no matter what, I'll be there for him. That's not different from the children we take care of in this school. So when you become involved, whether you're a student, whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandma, we want you to think about these children you are taking care of day by day. And Susan was called to that, and I said, you know what? You are hooked now, and you have to take care of them. And she said, have you ever thought about writing something that would tell the whole world what you are telling me now? I said, oh, I've never thought about it that way. Say, why not? She told me she got inspired by the story a journalist had written in a paper. This was 2003. And the way it happened, George Bush was in Uganda that day. And the journalist in Bloomington, Indiana, called me and said, George Bush is going to be in Uganda tomorrow. You are from Uganda. George Bush is interested in HIV AIDS issues. Why don't we run a story about your program you told me about? And they gave us front page. And that's how it started. Susan said, Susan said, okay, since... I was inspired by the story, just one story and one picture in the newspaper. If you wrote these stories down, you will inspire the whole world. Exponentially. Exponentially. That is why we wrote the book. Then I said, the story, I can share it with many people. When I meet T, I can talk to her about it. When I meet uh, Brian, engineer, I can talk to her. When I meet Michelle, I can do it. Sorry, I can tell her. But there are so many other people who are listening right now in their basement or anywhere in their car who will never meet Jackson in person. And we wanted them to still be able to get a joy of giving and take care of the children and get to know the story. That's why the book is here. It is for you, the listeners. 
read it, enjoy it, and please support the children. Can we talk a little bit more about the children, Jackson? Yes. Like, who, who are the particular children that you opened the school for in the village? We opened the school mainly for children whose dad and mom have died. And mainly, this population is their parents have died of HIV and AIDS. That's the majority. Others, their parents have died in war. Others, their parents have died of malaria. But majority of them, the number stands at 2.2 million children. In one country, Uganda, the size of Oregon State. You have two that are orphaned. That are that orphaned are as orphaned. a result of so many issues, but mainly HIV AIDS. And this is what happens. When George Bush went to Uganda in 2003, or Bill Clinton visits Uganda, the children who are orphaned are on the streets, like downtown Ann Arbor. The government rounds them up, puts them in a truck, and sends them away. Because they want to appear that the streets are clean and the guests are coming in. So you have all these children in villages, away from the city. You walk in the city, there are few. You walk in the villages, there are so many. But there also a scenario where so many children are in villages. In Uganda, you have an urban, rural urban movement where people leave their villages to come look for jobs, come for school, opportunities, all these good things, good clothing, they come to the city. Water. Water, <laughs> clean water, yeah. electricity, everything is in the, in the city. But when you die in the city, there are no cemeteries in Uganda. They ship you the body. They ship your body back to your ancestral home. And what happens because so many men work and women don't work? When a man dies, the wife and the children are shipped back to the ancestral areas. So that's why you have many children with grandmothers in a village setting where they never lived. And when you read the second last chapter in this book, it talks about grandmothers and what we do with that, that program. Very, very uplifting story. Because it is the grandmothers then that are... If the, child, if the child is lucky, they have a grandmother who will then raise them. Exactly. But as you were saying, the, the rural areas, of, they're in poverty. And that's so right. that's what they're returning to. Um, and so maybe what we could do is when we come back from the break, Jackson, is then we'll hear, a sec if you don't mind reading, a section of the book there. That would be, that would be wonderful. I would love to do that. And, and your grandmother was very inspiring to you and your grandfather as well, who, who seems to be, um, he was a man of action and would, would feed people and, ex and had a conversion experience. Uh-huh. Um, That's right. And I don't know if you want to say anything about your own grandparents. Because oh, you have a vocation. You have a calling. Oh, yes. So. I, I don't look at this and think I, I'm in this position by accident. It's through faith, I think. It's God's calling. I'm, uh, I'm just a spokesperson for the children and for the uh, grandmothers. Born in this tiny village, there's no way any of them would be right here in this studio with UT, with an audience, an audience like you have, if it is not by God's design. It's a calling. It's God's work. I'm just a vessel. I just accepted the calling to represent them, and that's what I do. 
And and how does that? Or it seems as if you're a person who has um, also like a, an inner resilience, and you can create your own energy. Because it's, when you say this, it seems like a huge responsibility, and mm-hmm. also perhaps exhausting. And yet, maybe it's because it's the beginning of the book tour. Because <laughs> so, you don't look exhausted. You seem to be very vibrant. So, I'm not going to get exhausted. It's been nine years of doing this and doing it with another, uh, another job. When, when you get this book and you feel discouraged at any point, you just turn to one of these kids' pictures in the Bruno, picture section. Bruno, for example, right? Turn to Bruno, for example. <laughs> uh, in your book, the Bruno is going to be on uh, page 104. I, I mean, I'm a 39-year-old man. Even when I'm in my house by myself and something moves, I kind of fringe and look around. Bruno, his parents died when he was 11 years old, and he stayed alone from when he was 12 years old. Alone in the house where there's no electricity, there's no water, there's rats running in the house. There are things falling on the top of the roof. And Bruno resiliently lives in. The picture of Bruno is there. When I get like bogged down, tired, I just turn a page and look at website and, and look at Bruno's picture. And um, if Bruno can do it every night... And I'm in Okomas, Michigan. Why can't I do it? The smile comes again, and I'm ready to go. And, and just as like a, a, a practical matter, too, because then Bruno was a, a, ver- a star student, as well as just being brave. And, and how far did he walk? Because you mentioned earlier the hills in your village and how that makes for quite a trek to get to school. But he lives alone, and then he would walk. Seven miles. And, and uh, seven miles each way, that's 14 miles every day. And he walks from this house and comes to Nyaka school. And uh, when I read, I will tell you that uh, Bruno, what puts him to sleep? When I asked him, how do you sleep? Bruno goes, I do my homework in my head. That's what puts him to sleep. For you and me, it might be soothing music. For engineer Brian, he might, might pick up his Ugandan music and, and go to sleep, wake up in the middle of the night and music is there, turn on the TV, call a friend. There are so many things we do, or read the scripture or pray. Bruno does math homework in his head, looking forward to wake up in the morning and go to Nyaka. And, and so... The, so if you go to um, the, the website, because how, how can people help? Like, how could they? And I know, and we'll talk about this again, but just briefly before we go to break, what can people do? Go to the website? People and can go to our website, uh, nyakaschool.org. That's N-Y-A-K-A school. Uh, they can donate by clicking a button there and donate. They can write a check and send it to us, P.O. Box 339, East Lansing, Michigan, 48826. They can... Um, is a percentage of the book, The Price of Stones, going to be oh, donated? De- definitely. Our book is published by Penguin Publishers. This is the ex- exciting thing. Penguin Publishers bought the book, and we took all this money and built a library. The first public library in the village, ever. So... 
No child now in our school will ever not have go a book. through yeah. what I went through. And on top of that, they have the book. They are going to have this book. Not only that, the agent who sold the book to Penguin got all her 30% she made and donated it back to Nyaka. The editor at Penguin, now Michelle might also donate hers. <laughs> the editor at Penguin turned around and donated all the proceeds she was making off this book to Nyaka. The woman who took the picture on the cover, she was an intern from Clinton School of Management. Penguin paid her a thousand dollars. A student, and intern, she, and she, she turned around and gave back the thousand dollars to Nyaka. And so that's why you have this. Now you have this this public, the first public library. It sounds like you've also you've started a farm. We have a seventeen acre farm. Uh, we have a public library. We take care of seven thousand grandmothers. We have four hundred and seven students in two schools. Kutamba, the green and white, ghosted, Spartans. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the, the, those are 150. We have the ones who've graduated. On the back of the book, you'll see caps and gowns. That's not typical in a Ugandan situation where you have children graduating from elementary school wearing caps and gowns. But to us... It was as big as Such graduating from UFM. Yes. <laughs> so we put them in cups and gowns. Those gowns were donated by a high school here in the United States. They collected money, and these kids got cake and soda, and they celebrated that big step. Well, I think that's what's very interesting from reading, because you've had articles written about you in Time, the Huffington Post, um, where you say that it's about also connecting children with children, because children are the same all over the world. That's right. And if you can show a child, like in, in an Ann Arbor school, like these are the crayons that you're going to donate. And now this is, the, this is the child who's your age. Look at them. They're using the crayons that you donated. Exactly, yes. The, it makes sense, a certain sense that might not be possible possible if you're you know growing up and just watching tv or cartoons at home yeah t just think about uh, a child who is in your neighborhood and wakes up and has all these things going on in their life and thinks uh, she has or he or she of course mom is there grandma is there grandpa is there they go fishing they do all these things all they know is that surrounding and school the books are there when this child grows up knowing there is another child across the many miles they will never meet, first of all, it works their imagination. How do they, what do they go through? Then they write letters and say, do you have a cat? And the child in Uganda goes, <laughs> cats stay outside. They don't stay in the house. Do you have a cow? And the child here says, what do you mean a cow? The other one goes, we milk cows every morning. I walk 10 miles. Walk? I can't run a 5K. How do you walk 7 miles? <laughs> this develops their reading, their social studies, their skills. But imagine that child now walking to university, the first year of university, after having all this experience in elementary school and middle school. And then that child goes and has a job in Japan as a sales representative and has all these people from all over the world who are working in the same company. This person already has everything 
anyone wants to teach them about diversity, about global issues, about climate change. They don't even think milk comes from Kroger anymore. They know the milk comes from a cow. And so that's, that's the opening, that's the gift that then you're giving to these American school children. I work on behalf of the children, whether they are in Ann Arbor, in our village Nyaka, in Detroit, wherever I speak to children, I give them as much attention as I would give to our children because we have a generation that will take up the world. And whether they are in our village or they are here, their world will change knowing each other and what's going on in each other's lives. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when you we were talking earlier, I was thinking we need you <laughs> for our Detroit school system. <laughs> we need if only yeah <laughs> well no that's off i was gonna say we have to get this cloning thing going <laughs> but that's not that seems like not the right spiritual aspect to be bringing to the program but but we do like the the school children in detroit they they also they they need people to care about them and to that they they don't have crayons in elementary schools there's no funding for that in some of the schools so anyway. yeah, our, our story when you read our book and we call you to action yes part of it is called to action that action does not mean that all your listeners need to write a check and send it to nyaka this call to action is for you to examine your heart the time magazine article that ran it was the power of one it didn't call for people to say now Jackson has power of one, go to Nyaka and do something. There's something you can do right next door to you. There's an elderly person who can't walk the stairs, down the stairs. Use your power as an individual. Use your, whether it is in Detroit, whether it is in Ann Arbor, there's a need somewhere. And our call is for you to use your determination and don't let anything stop you from making a difference. When I wake up every morning, I pray to God, help me to touch somebody's life today. And today I've touched Brian's life. That's right. That was thumbs up from, from Brian Delaney, yeah. engineer go. extraordinaire. <laughs> you know, Jackson, do you mind reading part of the book now? Because I think we'll, we'll kind of meander towards the next break. But let's do you mind reading for us part i'm of going to read uh, since we've been talking about grandmothers and children i'm going to read this paragraph that talks about a, one of the girls at nyaka school this is on page 114. there's a lot i can read i will start with this when nyaka opened fiona was already in primary five but she had been so excited to attend the school she begged to start over in primary one when pressed, she confided to me that she was desperate for a clean uniform and books to read. She lived with her Mukaka, Mukaka is grandmother, who had sold most of her land to pay for medical care. Now they owned only the land and a small shack, one embuzi, that's a goat, and a few chickens. They had no choice but to graze their animals and pour their waste water on another person's property. Fiona was too old for Nyaka, but I promised we would help her and support her while she attended another school. When Hillary was accepted at Nyaka, Hillary is Fiona's brother, I promised we would help support her while she attended another school and while Hillary is attending Nyaka school. 
But inside, a few lines of scribbled words kept coming to mind. See, that morning I had met with Fiona's grandmother. When we met, she handed me a paper, folded so many times, and these were the words on the paper. When the Lord takes me, I will die a happy woman, knowing that my grandchildren will be taken care of by Nyaka school. Please make sure this small house and the one goat and chicken are not taken away from my kids. It's all they have, and I want them to keep it. That note was signed by a thumbprint. Tears welled in my eyes. This is not necessary, I said, taking her hand. Yes, it is, she insisted. She said, squeezing my hand, I entrust what I have left to the school to make sure my grandchildren receive what little I have. Death has taken so much from me, and I don't want it to take this with me. That's a grandmother right there who I've known since I was a child, whose five children died and left her with two grandchildren, who sleeps in the same house with her goat, with her chicken, the same house where she makes food, same house where she sleeps with two kids, all in one room. And she told me all she worried about in life was how these children were going to die any time. See, to her, she thought because the parents died of HIV AIDS, the children had HIV AIDS. So when we tested them, and she also came and said she wanted to be tested, the thinking was, since she took care of her daughter who had HIV AIDS, she had also got HIV AIDS, which was not the case. And the little savings she had in her life, she was saving it because she thought the children are going to die anytime, and she needed money for the funeral. And as soon as she was assured that the children didn't have HIV AIDS and she didn't have HIV AIDS, now she's there giving us a planned gift. In fundraising, that's when somebody gives you their estate. She's giving us an agreement of this one shark house, smaller than this studio, where you can't even put a, a small bed and it would fit in the whole house. And she's entrusting it to Nyaka. That is what Nyaka has done in the lives of children and grandmothers. And the entire village. And the entire village. And so, so you can go to nayakaschool.org and find out more. And, and what, what yeah, Jackson, you're looking in the book. Is there something else that, that you'd like to, to read? Yeah, I can read you something, guys. Okay. Nyaka has um, started with 56 students. Now it has 407 students from two schools has expanded and has clean water. It has food gardening program is mandatory. Kids know how to cut each other's hair. They look after each other. So the children who are at Nyaka, I tell schools here that there's a school in Holt, Michigan here, Hope School. And I go there and speak to them. They write letters. 
Heather Simon is the teacher there. We nearly went there to dead see them. I told these students, which is true, that in nine years of Nyaka's operation and Kutamba, we've never had a single fight at school. Kids look out for each other, and they do it so well. So, one of the children, just like you know the, the children die of HIV-AIDS, I mean the, their parents, some of them are born with it. To control and stop HIV spreading to children, there's a medicine called Neverpin. In Uganda and in many African countries, that medicine costs, you can say, it, one dollar. One buck. A dollar will buy a medicine that a woman will take and will stop her from passing HIV AIDS to their unborn child. But many women in Uganda and in Sub-Saharan Africa cannot afford a dollar. And so they go to labor and they are giving birth. Any woman who has ever given birth, you look behind you and you see this child crying and you are happy you have brought life. These women are looking back at the baby knowing they have passed death penalty to the child. And they know if they had one daughter, that would not have happened. 1,400 mothers do that every day all over the world. In 24 hours, as we go around and drive in our Lexus and Benz and enjoy life here, women will be passing on HIV AIDS to their unborn children because they can't afford a dollar. Are you going to also then, is the next step also to set up clinics, more clinics and have the funding? Or is it, because what, cause when do you know when, like, you'll never stop. Like you'll, you won't, you, I mean, I can just tell by talking to you and, and not that you could, even if you wanted to, because there'll be more villages, more schools, more, but, but do you bring a clinic next now that the village has a school, a library, a farm? Yeah. And our health care program, our goal is to build a clinic that will improve the quality and accessibility of medical care for our orphans, their host families and entire community. And this is the poster we are going to give Brian to put on his bedroom window so everyone can see it and you can have one in the studio. Uh, that's a brochure that we'll be passing on tonight, by the way, at Borders. I'm speaking at Borders, but I don't want to digress here. Yes, we build a clinic. And yes, our children have seen the worst things anyone can ever see in regard to medicine. I have been a victim of being carried on shoulders of men and women going to the hospital. One chapter in the book talks about that near-death experience for me. But our children have witnessed women who, because they know there is a nurse at school, at yes. Nyaka. Yes, you have a nurse on staff on at the staff. school. And that's a holistic approach that many schools don't do in Uganda. It is revolutionary to have a nurse as a paid staff in the Uganda system. But we have a nurse, we have gardens, we feed our children two meals, we take care of grandmothers, we give clean water for the whole village, we 
provide library and reading opportunities. We do mentorship within the children. This is a holistic approach. I didn't read it anywhere. But growing up there, somehow with the elders and sitting down, we knew we have to give all hands-on approach to get children to keep moving. And it has paid off. When you look at the Time Magazine article, they will tell you, which is so true, our children passed their national exam. All of them, 100%. That's unheard of in any setting in Uganda, even private schools. But our children passed, all of them. They have an all-around holistic approach that has happened. So we want, of course, to go to every village and build a school in every village all, all over the world and using the same approach. Yes, yes. And you mentioned Fiona with that she had become too old for the particular school. So are you also doing building high schools? Are you are there scholarships being set up so that they can go on to the city and university? How how does that fit into this? Uh, I'm thinking you might have to be our spokesperson. This is very good. (laughs) We want definitely to build a secondary school now. Our children have graduated, and the first two classrooms that graduated in 08 and 09, we sent them to another boarding school. And now we are learning. Our students are there in other schools, but they are still at a tender age. We've invested in their lives for seven years, and now we are handing them over when they are still tender to someone else's care. And it's not working out as we expected. So we are going to build our own secondary school, mold their lives until they are university level. Then I'm coming to the president of UFM and say, Madam, we would kindly request five scholarships for students from Nyaka. Go to Northwestern, go to all Big Ten universities, Columbia, Indiana, Harvard. Our students will compete on the world stage just like any other student, given an opportunity. And and so, yes. And so how how are you fitting? Because you mentioned that your mother was reading the Bible um, in her language. So obviously not like the King James version of the Bible. But no. um, but so when did you learn English and how is that working in your school? Because that then they'll have the English. They can come to these <laughs> the Big Ten universities on mm-hmm. scholarship, hopefully in the future. Um, when Uga- do you? Uganda is... Um former coroner of uh, uh, British, England. Uh, and when I watched that soccer game, USA against England, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about soccer now. <laughs> but that the U.S. But, got a uh, gift on that oh, one. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we did get a gift. I'm an American citizen, so I wrote for America now. Right, Brian? All right, good. Uh, so because we are a British coroner, our education system is in English. The children begin school, the first two levels they will learn in both local language and English. The third grade instruction is in English through. So our kids, when you visit T and when you come with your mom, sorry, and Brian comes and plays that music and teaches our children how to DJ and do all that good stuff, the kids will embrace you and conversate 
co- have conversations with you in English. Yeah, they speak English, very good English. Go on our website and click on any video. You will hear them. If you go on the Facebook page, Nyaka Foundation, on all the price of stones on Facebook, lots of videos, and you will hear the children singing in English, reciting stories, and uh, reading news. Do you feel... Um conflicted at all about that? Because I, I know that part of you must not feel conflicted because you want them to be competing on a world stage. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but is there something, um, because where does their their first language go? Is any, like, what is lost in that? Because no, Nothing. Okay. Nothing is lost. Right now, if you want, I can start speaking in my local language. Please do. And say what? Um... I don't know anything that you'd like to say maybe about the the village itself. When you charochi tuni chirunji mnonga and chikunda mnonga mama ninkuramusa mnonga. That is, uh, I'm sending greetings to my mother and the people in the village. And uh, when you give me a tip, I pray it for her. You will never forget a language that shapes who you are. Uh, our children are born speaking that language. Their mom and uncles and grandmothers, most of them don't speak English. In fact, we struggle to speak English. Uh, you, you never really get that English language grammar and sentences completed down because you are all embedded in your local language. They don't lose it. Children who are born, like my son who is born in the United States... It's a different this is Nicol- story. This is this Nicholas. Is Nicholas. <laughs> That's a different story for him. Because his mom speaks English, I speak the local language and English, so we use English at home. That's a different story. For the children who are born in Nyakajezi, by the time they turn three, the language is mastered. They will never forget. I will never forget my language, regardless how many years I'm gone. When I call Uganda, ask Michelle, driving up here, I had a conversation with my sister. It was all in a local language. So it's not because as soon as you say colonialism, then it sort of makes it makes me cringe because I. But but in a way, the language is if if English can be called one of the global languages, then it could. It. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A, it's a national. It's an instruction language. We still have that, just like I mentioned. Books written in our language. Yes. We, we have everything done in local language. Kids have what for on and, and read. What other languages? Like, are you also having, like, a, are you studying Mandarin or... Swahili. Or Swahili? Swahili. The kids will study Swahili in secondary school. Okay. Uh, they introduce them to Swahili, to French. Okay. Uh, yeah. But uh, mainly English and the local language. And when they go back home every day, they speak the local language again with their guardians and so it's something that's augmented it's not as if like the the language it's it's not something to you can't get rid of it uh, thank goodness uh, <laughs> well it'd be like getting rid of part of your heart <laughs> exactly. i would imagine that, that's who that's who we are when i was started i said um, the village made me who i am and uh who I am is also comes also with the language that uh, I dream in my language. When I'm closed my eyes and I want to say silent prayer, it's my brain goes to my language. I don't dream in English. How how did you make the um, the? It's in sort of a, a jump to looking at fundraising 
when you came here, it was about like the, the human rights advocate. And was it just the natural outcropping? Because in order to act and to make something happen, you, happen, you needed to search for funding. Is that, and then you were good at it. Yeah, I, I have been, all the jobs I've had when I finished university, when I started doing that women and children rights, the organization was uh, in Uganda, they call them non-governmental organizations, NGOs. So that means these organizations don't accept funding from the government. So you fundraise. Only you raise money from different agencies and you write grants. So basically for me, in my entire career, I've never done anything except activism and fundraising. And being a people person who will sit down and have a conversation with any person, all I, and what I would do is make sure you understand what we are doing, you get it, and you want to be part of it, you support it. Not everybody does, but many people do. And what I try to do is to get to get a conversation and find your passion. Our organization, for example, has so many areas. It has women, it has children, it has vocational training, water. Not everyone will be passionate about everything. To you, it might be because you drank bad water at one time, and water is such an issue that is important to you. And that's the area you want to get involved in. To Brian, he might like to play soccer so much that uh, he'd rather work with kids who are playing soccer, so he buy soccer balls. They are all donations for water, for soccer balls. To Sarah, your mom, her grandmother might have been the most important thing in her life, and she wants to do something that will affect other grandmothers. This whole program, in fact, I'm going to enroll your mom to start the program for grandmothers for grandmothers. And uh, and other grandmothers who are supporting grandmothers in Uganda. They don't have necessarily to give money, but even writing letters. And somebody sitting there thinking, there's another person who cares about my issues. How important is it to have people actually come to the village and visit? Because I noticed in... Um, when reading the backstory, Susan, the co-writer, uh, and her daughter have gone to the village as well. So how important do you think that is in the, the puzzle? For me, selfishly, it helps me a lot. Then somebody's telling the story. <laughs> you go to Nyaka, uh, you are sucked in. What we explain here, I can use all the words I can master. I can explain it and bring as many pictures. Once you stand there and look in the face of a child, we are talking about here. It's so much different. So there are people from Michigan who have gone. There is a man from here in Ann Arbor called Ken Kuzino, who hosted a child called Alan. Alan was here at medical hospital here that donated all surgery for him. Ken Kuzino hosted him for a whole year and went to Uganda with him. Now he tells me every day he wants to go back. He was touched in a special way. It is wonderful to get to see it yourself, but it is also wonderful for the children to know that there is another friend out there who cares and who will keep thinking about them. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Jackson Kaguri. I'm T. Hetzel. 
We'll be right back.